This podcast was recorded at 8 a.m. on 19 April Jakarta time. Things may have changed by the time you hear this. Enjoy the show. This is Reformasi Dispatch. I'm Jeff Hutton. And I'm Kevin O'Rourke from Reformasi Weekly. Well, it's Ramadan. What are you doing? To, uh, have you ever, Mark, you know, I've always wondered, I've been eight years in uh, Jakarta, nine years, actually, next month, how time flies. I've always sort of wondered if I could work up the courage and the fortitude, the intestinal fortitude to um, observe Ramadan, because I think it can be a cleansing sort of experience. I don't know if it, I think you have at one point. Yeah, I've done it in the past yeah, in order to uh, solidarity with the household. You know, the big secret about Ramadan that you don't hear a lot about, fasting is not really all that hard. If you've ever skipped lunch, you know, it's kind of the same. It's it's more difficult than merely skipping lunch, but not a lot more difficult. What's the hardest part? I mean, there's got to be some difficult parts. It looks like the late afternoon is the trickiest part. Well, it's the uh, the headaches you get from caffeine withdrawal from not having had a cup of coffee. That's by far the hardest part. <laughs> but maybe that's just me. I don't know. <laughs> Oh, no. So I think I'm afraid to say that it's probably the, the caffeine withdrawal. Sitting here at 7.30 in the morning on a, on a Monday, <laughs> but I've got my coffee here, uh, I, and I look at it going, I, I don't know, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, moving on. we got a, a great show, and we're going to have an interview with Tiza Mafira. She's a, an environmentalist, former lawyer. Oh, I'm sure she's probably still an environmental lawyer. And she's been involved in a, in a documentary that's coming out this week. April 22nd, called uh, Pulau Plastic, Plastic Island. Yeah. It's about uh, ocean waste. I'm really looking looking forward to it. Right. I'm really looking forward to uh, speaking with her. I'm thrilled that she was uh, willing to join our podcast. I've heard her uh, discuss the topic before, and she really is a uh, serious, is uh, hugely important and kind of mind-blowing in the, in the scope and yeah, the consequences of it. So if you haven't um, done so, uh, go to YouTube, check out the trailer, Pulau Plastic, Pulau, P-U-L-A-U, Plastic, P-L-A-S-T-I-K. I'm sorry for my accent. Plastic Island. Check it out. You will be, you will uh, want to see it. On the show today, we're going to have a talk about ructions and the PKB. That's uh, Gustur's old party. Vaknus, the vaccine Nusantara. NPR speakers, gun club. <laughs> Indonesia gets a new gun club. And first... Because it is the season, we, I think we need to talk about mudik or the lack of it. Yeah, this is the uh, the annual exodus from the cities uh, nationwide as uh, temporary residents in the cities go back to their rural communities, uh, oftentimes uh, bringing savings that they carry back to help their families. And it uh, involves the movement of uh, tens of millions of people on the roads and ships and planes and everything. It, it's a little bit like, I, I always imagine it a little bit like keeping the ocean back with a broom. If you want to keep, you know, people in the big cities, and by big cities, I mean, it's mainly Jakarta, right? How would you do that? And would the authorities be in a better position this year than they were last year? Yeah, they're definitely in a much better position this year for a few reasons. One, uh, everybody's taking it way more seriously now than uh, anybody did a year ago. Plus, uh, there's a lot more tools at their disposal now uh, in terms of uh, screening technologies. PCR testing is more widespread, but rapid antigen tests are uh, available now. 
And then they've also got this, uh, you know, the, the Geno's uh, breathalyzer that we've talked about. And then the third thing is that there's been a lot of vaccinations administered to healthcare workers. And uh, yeah, about, I want to say uh, 25 or 30% of frontline workers now are uh, fully vaccinated. And a lot of those are the ones who are going to be involved in managing this um, Moodic Exodus uh, hands-on. As someone who has done a little bit of travel, not very much, but um, a little bit of travel in in the country. Look, authorities, they check your papers. They go through it. They uh, they scan that QR code. And if you don't have a, if you, they, they send, I, I've actually, so I did, I, I slipped through the cracks at one point, not knowing. I went to the Bandung to report on a story and I go to the Kareta Api, to the, to the train station there and like, where are your papers? What, what, <laughs> what papers? What? No, you can't, what? You're born under a rock. <laughs> you're, not, you're not getting on this train. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. And I think now there's going to be some roadblocks. Uh, there are going to be checkpoints on the toll roads. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's really uh, going to be interesting to watch how effective this prohibition on traveling is or, or the, uh, the the safeguards on uh, traveling without a negative test result. So the thing is that uh, there's just a million uh, uh, back lanes and alleys and rural streets that people can use, especially on motorbikes, to evade the checkpoints, I think. So... Yeah, there's basically there's going to be uh, massively enhanced mobility one way or the other, uh, even with a strong prohibition. And the higher mobility is going to fuel more transmissions because the vaccinations administered are good, but it's still only about 3% of the national target of 180 million. So Indonesia is susceptible to another wave for sure. And um, that's that's really the concern right now. Do you recall... What, what the influx of um, infections were last year, Mudik last year when they, they tried to ban it. They increased by about 30 or 50 percent you know, within the next few weeks. Yeah, it was a big jump up. That That's actually what kicked it off was the Mudik because, because before that, cases had been you know, imperceptibly low. Uh, this year, uh, there's also a risk of complacency because lots of times you see in uh, press reporting it being said that cases are low or cases are declining. When you look at the data for almost a full month now, cases have not been declining. They've been very much on a plateau. So uh, there's real risk of uh, you know, resuming momentum there. Right. Okay. We'll watch this space. Over at PKB, they are considering the, they're reconsidering the leadership. What's happening there? And it's, um, Yeni Wahid in the driver, in, in, um, in the pole position to, to take the leadership. Right. Well, uh, yeah. So the National Awakening Party or PKB is the affiliate of the largest Islamic organization, Nadlatul Ulama, which is a moderate religious organization that respects pluralism. Uh, and this is one of uh, the pillars of Widodo's pro-government alliance. It is, um, I think, the uh, third largest party in his alliance uh, after uh, PDIP and Golkar, or fourth if you count Garindra as being pro-Widodo. And Muhaimin Iskandar has been the chair since 2005. So this is one of those parties where it really doesn't have internal democracy because it's just dominated by a single personality. Uh, and uh, he's uh, very much intent on uh, staying in power and, in fact, also uh, trying to become simultaneously chair of NU, uh, which would then make him a, a very obvious candidate for vice president in 2024. 
he's the type of person who has made no, he's never disguised his political ambitions. He's very open about wanting higher office. And he took office in PKB in 2005 amid an extremely fraught internal rift between two factions, his versus that of the uh, Wahid family of uh, former President uh, Abdurrahman Wahid uh, Gostur, the late president. So his daughter, uh, Yeni Wahid, uh, lost out in that battle. And uh, so she's still around and you know available to uh, head an insurrectionist movement within the party. But it's unclear to me that detractors of Iskandar really have enough support. Yeah. So the thing is that, uh, you know, in these uh, in internal party battles, uh, triggering an extraordinary Congress takes uh, a certain amount of regional chapters uh, passing a threshold, an extraordinary Congress. And there's reports that there's a fair number in PKB that want that, but there's no proof. And even if those reports are true, they're still not at the uh, threshold yet. So uh, I don't think Iskandar is really in jeopardy. And so is, is do you think Yeni is actually... Gunning for the job, does does she have uh, higher ambitions for higher office? Yes, yes, she 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 was definitely sorely aggrieved by having lost that uh, battle back in oh five oh six. So she would uh, take it up at a heartbeat, I'm sure. Hey, podcast listeners, if you made it this far, then why not subscribe and rate us? It helps. And for a free trial of the Reformacy weekly newsletter, go to reformacy.info. Staying with politics, Indonesia is getting a gun club. Yeah. So, yeah. And it's probably not good news. Yeah. No. Uh, and uh, this is a uh, gun club founded and headed by Bambang Susatyo. So uh, Bambang's Bang Bang Club, you could say, I guess, if you wanted to. If we wanted to. I don't, we're going to keep yeah. that. <laughs> and I, think, I, I, th- I think we've got a title for the episode. Uh, yeah, no, no, maybe not. <laughs> but uh, he's the uh, speaker of the NPR, the People's Consultative Assembly, which is the combined legislature consisting of Parliament with 575 members, plus also the uh, Regional Representatives Assembly, which is has no power. It's the upper house, so it's a ceremonial role that he possesses, but. One thing that he's advocated is doing away with direct elections for president and instead having presidents elected in the NPR, which he heads, uh, I guess, thinking that maybe he would be a leading candidate in that case. Uh, And that's how it was done in the Suharto era. Uh, He himself also comes from uh, Pamuda Panchasila. So that's the, uh, yeah, he's had a career in there. And another Pamuda Panchasila figure, Yoris Rayuai, is uh, also in this gun club, which is called... Pariksa. Mm, Pariksa. That's Indonesian for, for test? Yeah, it's Indonesian for inspect. It's inspect. Right. It's coming up in my, in my Indonesian classes a lot during COVID. <laughs> yeah. And it's one of those very tortured acronyms that, you know, they really had to stretch it and you know, wriggle around in order to come out with Pariksa because they're ostensibly claiming that the purpose of the club is to help police enforce mm. Permits for uh, gun owners, make sure gun owners all have permits, which is actually the last thing this club really cares about, I'm sure. There's a lot of other things before that. 
Oh, wait, does, does Indonesia have a gun culture? I mean, it's, uh, I know it has, has had a history of, given Indonesia's history, I would have thought that the last thing the political leaders would want is to inculcate a, a gun culture. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, uh, anybody who's ever spent time in Indonesia, especially anybody who's come from America, it, I think probably really appreciates the fact that uh, it's incredibly safe. And, uh, yeah. you know, there's a lot of reasons for that. But one is the fact that it is extremely difficult to obtain a handgun. Uh, you look at these uh, very hardened, resourceful terrorists, uh, even they have huge difficulty procuring handguns for their attacks. There is a gun culture. It's just an extremely elite uh, uh, circle. And in the Suharto era, it was literally just the the, the inner circle of Suharto, his uh, offspring and their buddies. That was the uh, the Suharto era gun club. It was called uh, Prabakin. And that's still around. So I think Bamang Susatio recognizes that that group is weak because the Suharto family seems to be on the defensive and they're really a shadow of their former selves right now politically. Is this guy Bambang, was was he involved in the, I seem to recall now, a push right in the early years of the Widodo presidency. They wanted to uh, abolish direct elections in local governments. So no more elections for Bupati and mayor. Yeah, that's definitely part of his agenda for sure. Yeah, he's uh, he's definitely got anti-democratic ambitions. Yeah, so he's Bambang Susatyo is uh, one of the the chief risk factors in Indonesia's political outlook. Uh, also, because he he was the number two candidate for chair of the Golkar Party in 2019. So yeah, he came close to uh, being a major player, and he'll probably make a run for that again in future. Uh, or he could expand this gun club into a political party. You were talking about um, the Suhartos there, and I have noticed um, some reporting that the Suhartos have lost Taman Mini. That, that just uh, popped to mind. There's an opportunity maybe to talk about that. And Taman Mini has always belonged to the government, but the rights to operate it, in, he says in air quotes, was in um, the hands of the foundation that was run by the Suharto. And the FARC is in arrears, hundreds of thousands of dollars and losing money hand over fist. And it's a massive track of land in East Jakarta. How significant is this, this, this loss of the operation of, of the park? It kind of seems like the foundation may have been a little bit of a slush fund if, if it's been so badly run. Yeah, basically. So uh, Suharto back in the uh, mid-1970s gave the concession to operate this uh, new national theme park to First Lady's Foundation, uh, Harapan Kita. And to this day, there's at least three or four Suharto family members uh, on the board of Harapan Kita. And Taman Mini is its main operating unit. They, they do have a couple of hospitals also and an office building. But uh, Taman Mini is a, is a national landmark. It's a, it's a theme park that celebrates diversity and beauty and um, yeah, ethnicities of Indonesia. It has multiple different museums. There's a lot of different ministries and agencies that are involved in managing different parts of the park. So it's an agglomeration of things. But the overall umbrella is uh, Harapan Kita. And they have never contributed any revenue to the government, even though the government is the owner of the land and the owner uh, of the park. So whatever whatever it is they're doing, they're pocketing any profits. And there should be a lot of profits because uh, this thing is visited by uh, huge numbers of people year after year. 
And it is a great site. It's good, but it's not an international class kind of venue. And it could be. The land itself is just a, a choice piece of real estate. It's a 150 hectares uh, in an area in the 1970s that was on the outskirts. It was well outside central Jakarta. Uh, nowadays, it's right smack in the middle of uh, Jakarta. So uh, it's got huge potential. So it's being transferred to the, the government and they'll run it through a um, state-owned tourism company from now on. What does that say about the standing of the Suhartos? Yeah, it says a lot. I mean, for the fact that the Widodo administration is willing to just literally grab this choice thing away from the bulk of the Suharto family uh, shows that the Suharto family is really weak. And it implies that Widodo is, and his people around him are fed up with the Suharto family uh, constantly agitating in politics because there's been you know, a few uh, phases now where several Suharto family members have been supporting opposition parties. I was um, having a look through the uh, the the vault, the um, the reporting at around the time of the of the transition to democracy. Reformasi came across the Time cover story of the of the corruption of the Suhartos. If anyone hasn't uh, read it, you should go back to it. It's uh, it's quite the blast past. The article, the cover story, was just a reminder of the extent of the graft, just the just how venal they were and how rapacious and kleptocratic how it, was, it was. It was just extraordinary what Indonesia had suffered at at uh, their hands. Yeah, well, it was a it was a very elaborate patronage based political system where everything was geared towards uh, generating abnormal profits through monopolies or concessions to produce economic rents, which those in power could recycle as largesse to, to buy loyalty from followers. And so well, there was a substantial percentage of the population that benefited from that largesse, uh, whether it's 5 percent, 10 percent, 15 percent, maybe. Um, but then a lot of other people. We're really suffering, yeah. Mm. In that vein, uh, overwrought sense of entitlement. Uh, on to back news. Former Minister Tarawan and would-be ambassador to Spain is beating the drum for this American vaccine that's been dressed up in the Meraputi. He won't let it go. Yeah, this is a, a vaccine we've talked about uh, before. Uh, it's not the um, the red and white vaccine or the vaccine Meraputi, which is the national vaccine being developed at home by Indonesia's own Eichmann Institute. Instead, this is called uh, uh, VACNUS, which stands for Vaccine Nusantara, which makes it sound like it's a national vaccine because Nusantara is basically almost eponymous with the word Indonesia. Uh, so it's it's being portrayed as a national vaccine, but it's not at all because all aspects of this product come from Ivita, which is a, a biomedical startup that's five years old in California. The vaccine is this, is this multi-step process of taking plasma and then basically tailoring a, a treatment or a, a, an inoculation for you? It, it seems like it's got a lot of moving parts. Yeah, uh, well, it, uh, Hans Kirsted is uh, the Ivita founder, Canadian, and he's a, a stem cell expert. Um, so he's, you know, he's been highly successful and he's been focused on using stem cell methodologies to treat cancer using with a vaccine approach. So basically he's trying to find a uh, stem cell based cancer vaccine. Then COVID cropped up and he's trying to apply the same methodology to COVID. So they came to Indonesia to do a phase one trial with uh, 27 participants. And there's two different sets information about how that worked. The Ivita on his website says that nobody experienced any serious adverse consequences and the uh, phase one trial succeeded. Penny Lukito, 
the chair of the Food and Drug Oversight Agency of Indonesia, BPOM, says to in a parliament hearing that the phase one trial was a disaster and that 70% of participants had side effects, including multiple participants who had serious blood disorders. So, And she also faulted these uh, vaccine developers for not being transparent and forthright. And she listed a whole bunch of other problems with this uh, phase one trial in terms of their, um, she claimed that uh, people involved had uh, already had uh, COVID antibodies before taking part in the trial, so they shouldn't have been eligible. She said that um, you know, their, their standards of manufacturing and uh, clinical processes are weak. So, And then she also disputes whether this whole thing is appropriate for Indonesia in the first place, because it's a, it's a very complicated process for administering the vaccine. As you mentioned, uh, basically, they draw a, a basic blood sample from a person and then they uh, take that serum and pull out the autologous cells, or the dendritic cells, and treat that with a uh, recombinant spike protein uh, from uh, uh, SARS coronavirus and then let that kind of work for seven or eight days and then re-inject it back into the same person from whom it came. So it's a, supposedly a personalized vaccine, but it involves a lot of coordination in terms of the timing and the storage and the labeling and the scheduling of the person to come back at just the right time to be re-injected. So Penny Lukito says this is not the vaccine for Indonesia. We shouldn't be wasting our time with it. And she refused. She, she refused permission for a stage uh, two clinical trial. However, uh, a stage two trial is taking place nonetheless in the Ghetto Subroto Army Hospital, um, headed by uh, Terawan Putranto, uh, the former health minister who himself is a retired three-star general and himself formerly headed Ghetto Subroto Army Hospital. This effort used to have also the Karyadi Hospital in Samarang, affiliated with Dipanagoro University, a prestigious school. They're no longer part of it with no explanation. So it's it's all very uh, suspect and weird. Um, and then meanwhile, yeah, they've got a whole bunch of politicians taking part in the phase two trial. So if this has been uh, hit on the head by the head of Indonesia's version of, of the FDA, why is it even still considered a thing? Well, I think that um, I'm guessing here. I think that the reason is, is that um, there is widely perceived that Terawan Putranto has a very close personal rapport with Joko Widodo, the president, and so therefore he can get away with it. And so it's, it's, what's really striking is that none of the uh, other figures besides Penny Lakito, who should be saying something, are saying anything. The health minister is mom. Uh, the army chief, who's in ultimately in charge of this hospital where this is happening is mom not saying anything. And so too with the uh, COVID task force uh, personnel. Um, so uh, it's uh, all very ominous because this, this could go wrong in a lot of ways. Well, right. I mean, if, the, if this goes pear-shaped and it looks like it already has, um, what, what does this do for confidence um, in Indonesia's broader vaccination effort? Yeah, it just creates vaccine skepticism one way or another, because um, one scenario is that you know, they foist a, a bad product on the population that makes vast numbers of people sick and doesn't work. Another possibility is that this Ivita product is a wonder drug, which is the cure for humanity. But because they did a dodgy trial, nobody believes it. <laughs> and so that, that would hold, hold it back. And then, uh, but the, the larger, um, more likely scenario is that uh, all, all this controversy just uh, weakens the uh, credibility of Lukito as BPOM chair and creates more skepticism about vaccines uh, in general. So it's, it's something that I think is helping Tarawan, who's, who's trying to rehabilitate his image after having been sacked as health minister. 
finally in December. But other than that, it's not really helping anybody, I don't think. And uh, presumably the army wants to be seen as the guardian of the nation. They want to be doing some Hail Mary pass as well. Yeah, well, yeah, there's an opportunity there for somebody to uh, come out with a miracle cure for COVID that uh, brings life back to normal. And I think there's uh, plenty of uh, leaders within the ranks of the army who want to seize that opportunity if uh, if it's a, within reach. And there's a, there's a huge amount of positive sentiment within the political elite for Tarawan. He's, he's, he's been extremely effective at uh, lobbying elites uh, behind him. So they're uh, championing him. He's supposed to go to Madrid as ambassador, as you mentioned. <laughs> I don't know when that's going to happen. But uh... Meanwhile, I still wait for my Sinovac. I'd be happy with that. I'm happy with any vaccine. I feel a, I feel a story coming on. Anyway, uh, coming up, Tiza Mafira. Tiza, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, pleasure, and thanks for having me. I have been a reporter in Indonesia since, well, we're going on nine years now. And the issue of of disposable plastic, single-use plastic, has always seemed to, it's always sort of struggled to reach a sort of critical mass um, in, in the in the minds of the public. We've had the bans on shopping bags, but I hate to tell you, I could go downstairs in the basement of my apartment building and I can get takeaway from the water room, including in, in a styrofoam container. Um, very, it's, it seems to be we're making a step forward and staying there and ma- making a couple steps back a little later. Just as an issue... Where does it sit in the popular psyche? One step forward, two steps backwards is exactly how I feel the movement has been going for the past eight years that I've been focusing on this issue. But uh, what it does mean is that there is some progress as well, albeit slow. And the key thing that we always like to emphasize is that it really isn't the public's fault. It isn't the fault of average consumers and average individuals. Um, because the system is a system that still provides these single-use plastics for free or actually for, you know, a very, very small, uh, uh, you know, monetary amount. Now, the successes that have occurred, for example, with plastic bags, is in supermarkets and modern stores. Uh, you will see that it hasn't worked as well in traditional markets, in the warungs, in the restaurants. Um, it hasn't worked as well in all the informal type of establishments, and it hasn't worked as well on online platforms. Uh, the reason for that is because uh, the first phase of regulations that we're now seeing across Indonesia is specifically targeted towards supermarkets and modern stores, simply because it's easier uh, they are more established. They've um, uh, started trials uh, years in advance, um, and they're generally more prepared uh, when the regulations started coming out. Uh, so now, well, you know, my organization has dealt with this for years. Uh, now we're starting to move into, okay, now we've had success with modern stores. How do we replicate this success with the more traditional stores? 
And how receptive are they? The Wadarungs, the 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 um the go food types, you know, you know the the people that are selling food out of their kitchens. What's what's the receptivity there? There was a lot of resistance in the beginning um, because it was it plastic is so cheap. Um, and it, it costs them nothing to provide uh, consumers this for free. One of our first arguments to the traditional markets, we, we have uh, piloted the first plastic-free traditional market uh, starting here in Jakarta um, and uh, starting with plastic bags. The first things that we said to them was, listen, you are now providing plastic bags for free to your customers. How much do you pay for that? And a vendor would say something like 500,000 rupiah per month, 600,000 rupiah per month. So after we started the trial, we went back and said, what, what do you think? And they said, oh, we, we don't have to uh, spend this money anymore. We, we, we actually had some savings. Um, great. So we thought problem solved, right? Because now they see the economic value of doing this. But a few months afterwards, uh, after the program, uh, we came back and then there was another lag. They were saying, oh, yeah, because some of our customers didn't carry bags and it was just such a hassle for us to, yeah. you know. And then, oh, yeah, some of our customers. Making it and then, stick, right? Yeah, exactly. So making it stick um, has been has been a challenge. Yeah, I, I heard you uh, speak at a World Bank presentation um, a couple of years ago uh, discussing uh, marine-borne uh, plastic waste. So in, in your role, um, you focus on, on plastic waste uh, globally, uh, I mean, uh, terrestrial and marine and everything? I focus on reduction of single-use plastics uh, from the point of uh, distribution to the consumer. So less on the upstream uh, manufacturing uh, point, uh, more on distribution to consumers. and. Sometimes uh, we get. Sometimes th there's an impression that we're working on like consumer education type of uh, uh, activities, whereas that's correct. But we, we don't believe that individuals should be responsible for uh, uh, this issue. Um, there has to be consumer behavior change, but it has to be uh, achieved by. Um, allowing consumer giving consumers the choice to act appropriately uh, and that means regulation at the retailer I, I, I like this. side yeah uh, regulation that means policy basically right. and and that's that's what we've been focusing on uh, for the past 8 years because a lot of like the the businesses are getting away with making it the consumer's fault like if you only took the extra step to recycle they won't have a problem you need to do the work we're not the problem. Am I right in thinking that the evidence shows that once when government steps in with regulation, then things get done? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And and even even regulations that don't get, um, you know, when when we say oh, regulation will solve the problem, there's always this voice that says uh, only if it's enforced. Right. Which is which is true. But we found even that with weak enforcement, you know, for cities that don't necessarily have uh, strong uh, law enforcement, uh, we we find that still there's there's a measure of there's a success rate that's quite significant. Um, and, uh, you know, for the cities that we've actually worked with and that we've uh, collaborated with and provided technical assistance to, 
um, our recent surveys have found that uh, the success rate varies for cities that have uh, implemented uh, bans, but um, the variation is uh, uh, around the range of 40 to 80 percent of reduction in plastic bag use. Yeah. Now, the 40 part, right, that's quite that's below 50 percent, but it's still better than the recycling rate, which is nine percent. So, so I mean, this this is uh, to us. This is evidence that this is a success. It's way the prevention is better than uh, dealing with the waste after the waste has accumulated. Tisa, can I ask um, when you're in the process of uh, discussing regulations with policymakers, who are your allies, and how do you find them? We work with the environmental agencies of each city. Um, we don't necessarily have access to the top tier, you know, the governor, the mayors, uh, not, uh, not necessarily on that level. Um, and we find that even working with the bureaucracy, um, we're able to get somewhere because um, subnational governments, regional governments in Indonesia do have the bulk of responsibility to deal with waste. So 70% of waste management in, in, in Indonesia uh, is actually mandated to uh, regional governments to to implement. So it's very much in line with their KPIs uh, and and uh, you know talking to them and saying that this will help your KPIs, this will help you achieve your waste reduction targets gets us in the door every single time. Um, the fact that we're we're trying to help them uh, achieve targets that they they themselves have already uh, set. Uh, so. Uh, those are we find that they're they're our allies. So, Tisa, there's a five hundred and forty something regions. Does that mean you have to replicate this work five hundred and forty times? <laughs> uh, hopefully not. <laughs> um, we've worked with six cities, um, so that's Banjarmasin. We've worked with Bogor. Um, We've worked with Bandung. We helped Bali and Jakarta with their regulations. And uh, these are kind of big ticket cities. Yeah, they're, they're, they're well recognized, especially Bali and Jakarta. So what happened was a ripple effect, uh, essentially, where once you started getting a number of recognized cities to implement innovative um, legislation around reducing single-use plastic, preventing single-use plastic, um, there was a ripple effect where other cities followed suit. We also, uh, you know, facilitated forums where all these cities could get together, talk about successes, challenges. Um, and these forums could, could be attended by anything from 20 to about 40 cities in one go. Uh, and so now we're in a situation where upwards of 40 cities across Indonesia have legislations in place to ban single-use plastic. Uh, and that that is basically the ripple effect. Um, so hopefully we don't need to go into each and every city, but we do need to continuously facilitate this kind of lesson sharing um, across cities. That, that communication is very important. Um, you're in Bali now and I'm uh, jealous, so hell. Um, and I seem to recall... Um, some video taken by a diver, I think, in Bali of, um, of, of a di And he was making his way through a cloud of floating plastic rubbish. And that, that image went viral. How important was, was that video? Um, and how responsive have policymakers here been to outside pressure 
is it working or does it or do they get their backs up um yeah that's an interesting question uh, it's hard to establish a causal link yeah um th- there's a number of factors right that that uh, that uh inspire uh policy making um i can tell you the immediate reaction i mean the immediate reaction from there there was that video and then there were um there was uh once this uh, pronouncement um by uh professor jenna jambeck's uh publication that indonesia is the second worst uh contributor to plastic pollution right. in the ocean the that one was a real stinger for the government um because that one was a science journal uh the the video for bali i think was a a stinger for bali as well it went viral and you know i, I think i think in general it hurt the sense of dignity that the government had uh towards uh, indonesia's image um whether or not it um led to immediate action is difficult to say it definitely led to you know statements or commitments that you know uh indonesia is already doing this and that and this and that you know interestingly you the, the study by yeah 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 especially with uh yeah, and you can you can really see this quite concretely with the um, study that was published by Jenna Jambeck where the government actually got together uh and announced uh, had a, s- a series of you know focus group discussions with other scientists and other ministries and came out with a statement that Jenna Jambeck's research was flawed because she didn't use this data or that data you know so there was a little bit of a uh, defensive mode going on but for uh, civil society organizations this thing is fuel these these things are um you know we don't need we don't need to wait around for conclusive facts the strongest data right, available right. you know even it's these kinds of things are, are ammunition for us to start moving and saying you know there's there's pressure there's not just pressure from outside there's pressure from inside too local civil society organizations have been saying this for years too so uh now that you know everybody whoever it is the you know viral videos or cso's have your attention or local activists have your attention whoever it is that grabs the government's attention uh you know they're good to go and what's uh, what's the what's the policy that you advocate for single use plastic then typically especially uh, uh shopping bags is it a, a ban on their use or a uh a surcharge a fee or a combination yeah in the beginning uh the first success that we had with advocacy was when we advocated for a trial a plastic bag charge um that was uh you know implemented uh, ultimately in 2016 across 27 cities uh, in Indonesia it started from a petition that i made and there was a very conscious decision at the time uh for me to demand for a charge uh there was already an understanding that the higher call would be a ban but i don't know somehow i felt that wouldn't work because 8 years ago nobody was talking about uh phasing out single use plastics um if we had started with a ban you know it would have met with blank stares so with a charge though there was a very economic argument for for that especially for retailers right look you get to charge for something that you, that is now costing you and you get to do it on the on behalf of the environment so uh this this is actually logical so uh, that 
that met with success. Um, the Ministry of Environment picked it up, trialed it in 27 cities. And from then, people started talking about the issue nationwide because suddenly 200 million people were being asked to pay for plastic bags, um, whereas initially they thought this was like a freebie, like a, like a facility that consumers should have. Uh, and so it triggered a conversation about, oh, why, you know, are we being charged? There were some miscommunications and misunderstandings. Oh, the government's always trying to get money from us and taxes and this and that. But at least uh, a conversation happened and the cities became involved. Um, and immediately after that, uh, uh, we saw one city, Banjarmasin, uh, immediately following up with a ban. So that's exactly what we were going for. And after that, we were able to move on to advocating for a ban because the conversation had, had already been triggered. This is a, a country that really relies on the single-use plastic. I'm thinking of the, of the, the single-use sachets of laundry detergent, of the, the drink cups, so there's there's a probably a long way to go. I'm interested in in the success that you've had so far with the the ban. I think we're in our second year of the ban in, in Bali. What has, has there been a, a decrease, a noticeable decrease in in uh, plastic garbage? Yes, yes. So the decrease at the point of sales has been about upwards of forty percent, um, and the decrease in the beach cleanups have been 30%. So a 30% noticeable decrease in plastic bags that get collected during beach cleanups. So um, uh, yes, there is, there is a success. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's not perfect. It's far from perfect. But it is a significant reduction. Fantastic. Tisa, I got to ask you, I've been to uh, places uh, in more remote parts of Indonesia that are uh, beautiful, spectacular places to visit and very peaceful and enjoyable, with the, except for the fact that the beach is just covered, inundated with vast quantities of plastic and garbage. How does that come about? Is, is, that, is, is that just a function of the currents and the geography of the location in, in most part, or is it also because of local policies and, and an absence of any waste management locally? A lot of them are sachets and styrofoams. And uh, one of the things that we always like to emphasize is that these uh, products are, are they, there's a brand on them for sachets. There's a brand on them for, for cups and bottles. There's a brand on them. And those brands are multinational FMCG companies. And these um, FMCG companies don't actually produce sachets in the, you know, in Western parts of the world. And so there's a double standard in the type of packaging that's being sold by the same company to European countries uh, and uh, to, to developing countries. Um, with the argument that developing countries need a, a, a cheaper price point. But, you know, actually, it's not true. If you add up the sachets to the amount that is in a bottle, it's actually it actually becomes more expensive than a bottle. Um, oh, yeah. And uh, the, the thing is that the thing is that sachets can't be recycled and straws can't be recycled. Um, in order for recycling to happen, there has to be a supply chain that reverses the waste. So picks up the waste from where it's consumed and sends it back somehow up the supply chain, at least until it go, uh, finds a recycler. Yeah. 
And for Indonesia, that is an archipelago with 17,000 islands, how exactly would you arrange, you know, reverse transportation that picks up the waste from all of these uh, into the closest recycler? Um, assuming that, you know, some products can be recycled like bottles, but for sachets, there's no buyer. There is no buyer of sachets because they cannot mm. be recycled. So who would, in their right mind, spend the money to pick up these sachets from all these islands? And it shouldn't be the government because the government doesn't have that kind of money. So we're, what we're saying is that the companies should be responsible. There has to be extended producer responsibility. And if they can't be responsible, if they can't take the waste back, then they have to redesign their packaging so that they do away with these sachets. They do away with all kinds of single-use plastic that's difficult to recycle. And they make sure that every single, every single packaging that comes out of their factory is able to get picked up, you know, um, by a uh, market. Uh, there's a market for, for it to be picked up. Um, so, yeah, that, that, that's the reason why there's so much waste littering our beaches. And one last question on this topic is just, uh, is that the central government's responsibility then to regulate the uh, product packaging? And if so, uh, how does the Widodo cabinet stand uh, um, in that area? Yeah, it is the central government's authority and responsibility to regulate extended producer responsibility um, and essentially require producers to do something, right? Um, and the Ministry of Environment has issued a regulation that it's called a, a roadmap for reduction of waste by producers. It's got elements in there like bans of certain single-use plastics that are difficult to recycle. It's got things in there like um, uh, designing your packaging so that it's, it's bigger than uh, uh, a certain uh, volume, yeah. So that's that's meant to prevent like small uh, sachet type mm -hmm. packets. Um, but there's also a long timeline. It's like ten years. So the roadmap is ten years. Uh, a lot of this will only get implemented in 2030. Uh, and the other catch is that a lot of this uh, will only be successfully implemented if the Ministry of Industry is fully on board with it because they're the ones that are holding the licenses for these industries. They're the ones that can actually have, um, provide consequences for a, um, for a non or for violation of uh, industry licenses. So unfortunately, the Ministry of Industry uh, hasn't been particularly gung-ho about this uh, roadmap. Um, and uh, frankly, I don't see um, how it's going to be effective if the Ministry of Industry doesn't start acting. Uh, how about the Minister of uh, Tourism? Yeah. Yeah, the Ministry of Tourism has already also uh, tried engaging with this discussion. We also did uh, a, a research for them on you know zero waste tourism and what it looks like. They're able to issue guidelines, um, but again, they're not able to enforce waste management uh, regulations because it's not their jurisdiction. So there's a little bit of a, a complexity, or that's an understatement. There's a huge complexity around just figuring out jurisdictions. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, 
I don't think it's a secret to you guys that coordination among ministries uh, is a primary challenge for governance here in Indonesia. Uh, so I, the answer to your question is that the Ministry of Tourism has a set of guidelines that is aimed at, um, uh, you know, uh, letting uh, hotels uh, know how to wa- manage their waste uh, properly and reduce waste. Um, but they don't necessarily have the jurisdiction and authority to enforce those guidelines. And it's so important because if, if you're if you're walking down a beach in Bali and you're wading through effectively other people's garbage, it's not a good look for a, for a tourism industry. Yeah. Yeah, it's not. It's not a good look at all. Can I ask um, about, I know uh, you're focused on uh, consumers and the, um, you know, the point of sale, but can I ask about the waste collection process? And um, I know it's not the solution to the problem because it's better to prevent the waste from happening in the first place, but given that right now at the moment anyway, the waste is out there, the, the collection matters too. I think the key with waste collection, uh, and again, I'm going back to uh, prevention, <laughs> sorry, is that um, people need to sort their waste. And the primary solution for people to start sorting their waste is that there has to be a consequence for people who don't sort their waste. Um, again, I don't want to blame the consumers. I don't want to blame the households. Mm. If there are no consequences for you when you combine all your trash together, you combine your plastics and your food waste, then how are people going to really get the message that this is important? And there's a number of ways that this could be enforced that you could have, um, you could not pick, you could, you could have the waste not picked up. You could have penalties for, for mixing your waste, or you could have rewards for separating your waste. There's a number of policy options. But all of these policy options have time and time again been spurned by the government because the existing regulations still um, place waste management at the household level as a community effort. What it means is that if it's a community effort, then the officers can't come in and Hmm. enforce that. Uh, Because it's not the officers who come and pick the waste. It's the community waste picker that comes in and picks the waste. See, there's, it's, it sounds like stupidly simple, but um, it's been notoriously difficult to get around this jurisdictional issue. And, um, you know, it's, uh, I think the key, I think the key for waste, for effective waste collection is that somehow you have to get households to separate their trash. And then you you ask about um, you know waste that gets into the rivers. Well, that's that's kind of uh, you know that was a mistake, right? The the fact that waste gets into rivers in and of itself is a mistake, and and so the trash boons. Did you call it boons? I'm not really familiar with the with the term for it. I think it's like nets, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the nets that are installed. Uh, yeah, I heard of those. They were piloted in a few uh, canals. And um, I'm not sure uh, about whether it was consistently um, applied across every single uh, waterway that, that, that flows into the sea. But it's also not just... Uh, the, the waste doesn't just come from waterways... It into the sea. The waste also comes from coastlines, uh, and so even t- 
to this day, um, we find coastlines in Jakarta that are being used as illegal uh, landfills. This is something that I have no answer for at the moment. Kind of, we're still kind of investigating this, um, just from community, you know, citizen uh, efforts to investigate. I don't know whether the government is aware of this or whether it, they can they are aware and they condone it, you know. Um, but it's it's happening even uh, along um, along Jakarta's coastlines. So I don't think you know any kind of um, solution that uh, is aimed at catching waste from waterways is going to be enough. It's it's certainly necessary, but it's not going to be enough. Before you melt. Tell us about the documentary, uh, Pulau Plastic. When, when can we see it? Where can we see it? Okay, so it's going to be in theaters, so um, it's time wow. to get over theaters. your fears of Not being in a closed, closed um, environment with a lot of people. Just wear a mask. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, for the first part, it's going to be in theaters. Of course, there are talks of it uh, being able to be streamed online uh, after uh, the theater run is over, but uh, I still don't have the details of that. Um, it, because it was created as a big cinema uh, uh, film uh, and it was picked up by a, a big production house here in Indonesia, um, you know, it's it's quite a big deal that the three cinema brands uh, in Indonesia are picking it up uh, and going to to host the movie um, uh, in multiple cities across Indonesia. the The film is a documentary film that focuses around three characters. Um, uh, there's myself, and then there is Prigi, who is a scientist, and uh, there is uh, Robi, who is a rock star uh, in Bali. The story is that uh, Robi, who lives in Bali, uh, travels uh, to Surabaya, where Prigi is, and then travels to Jakarta, where I am, and just, you know, melds with our activities. Um, and the whole thing is not set up. It's like we were we were just going about our daily activities. It's, it's really, it's a pure documentary that follows uh, what we do. Um, you know, in our own ways, with our own backgrounds, right, um, to solve the single-use plastic issue. Your own activism. Uh, yes, yes, in our own activism. So, you know, it shows how Robbie's has al Robbie has always been campaigning about the issue in every single uh, rock concert that he does. Uh, and uh, Prigi is uh, researching microplastics. And um, I am always, like, trying to push for... Um, uh, community support, uh, public support for regu regulations that are being planned or regulations that are about to come out. And there's a whole lot of campaigning that needs to be involved in all of this work um, to show that, look, there's a huge um, public support for uh, the prevention of single-use plastics. So that's what uh, the movie is about. And you'll see, like, towards the end of the movie, even though it focuses on three characters towards the end of the movie. You'll see just a sheer amount of individuals and organizations that need to be involved and that are involved um, across Indonesia uh, on this issue. Everyone should go check out the uh, the trailer on YouTube, Pulau Plastic. Um, and we're going to put a link 
in the show notes. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Really enjoyed this thank talk. Thank you for having me. And uh, we wish you every success. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. And I hope you get to see the movie. Well, put on our mask and we'll we will, go out to this. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Bye-bye. <laughs> Great. Bye. Bye, Jeff. Bye, Kevin. And that's the pod. Thanks to Tiza Mafira of the Plastic Bag Diet Movement. Our producer is Stephen Handoko, editing by Aditya Akbar. Music by the Blue Dot Sessions. For a free trial of Kevin's Reformasi weekly newsletter, go to reformasi.info. As always, you can message us on Instagram at onthelevel underscore media. Reformasi Dispatch is a production of On The Level Media. I'm Jeff Hutton. Bye for now.